everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast. My name is Charles. I'm a developer here at Frontside, and today we are going to be talking about the things that go into making a JavaScript framework. Uh, because hey, there's not enough of those in the world today. So we're going to talk about that. And with me is uh, Taras. Hello, hello. And we've got uh, two very special guests who have a lot of experience with this topic, Mr. Chris Freeman and Brandon Hayes. Hey, guys. Hi there. Hi there. We're talking about the Poofberry framework, right? <laughs> What's the Poofberry? Oh, there's a tweet that's going around right now that one of them says, hey, I, I don't know what I should be doing. And one of them said, the next person says, oh, just use Poofberry. <laughs> what, is, what is that? It's like fluff nuts, but for hooks up. <laughs> hey, dot, dot, dot. Then it integrates with Logbungler. <laughs> oh, that's, wow. Uh, there's a yeah. reason that I'm dying laughing. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> laugh, cry, laugh, cry. <laughs> but yeah, so let's start with like, you know, kind of a very basic assessment here of like, you know, because there's a lot of different things that you can use to compose uh, the applications that you build. But for some reason, some of these things are grouped as we considered libraries and some of them are considered frameworks. And I don't know that the boundary is very clear. Like, you know, it's come more, it's, you know, like I'll know it when I see it type thing. Um, so maybe we can start with, you know, what is the difference between a framework and a library? Yeah. So I, I have some thoughts on this. I feel like this is one of those questions that could easily just turn into an infinite bike shed. But I remember reading something a while ago that stuck with me for a long time. And I'm pretty sure it was related to Java. But that makes sense because if anyone's going to be talking about frameworks, it's Java developers. But it was saying that the difference between a library and a framework is inversion of control. And the idea is a thing that's a library is a thing where you are in control. You bring the library code into your code and it's up to you what you do with it. In a framework, like the framework code calls you is I think what it said. So it's like you call the library right. code, the framework code calls you. And in Soviet framework. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so like a framework says, here are a bunch of open spaces for you to put your code in and I will take care of the rest. Mm -hmm. Versus a library is just like, I don't know, here's some things you can use. It's up to you. What do you want to do with them? Right. So in kind of like in C land, that would be Basically, a framework would be the thing that's got the main method. I think same thing in Java. And, you know, it's like when you call it, like, does it actually implement the main method? In JavaScript, it would probably, like in Node, that would be something, you know, under that definition, it would be like, are you the main script when you invoke Node? Like, do you control the main script? Uh, yeah. So you've, if you were kind of doing your own command line parsing, for example, you know, you would be looking at, uh, you know, process.argv and pulling off the command or the command lines and doing all the things. But it, you would say, like, even if you're using something like Yargs or, uh, you know, option parser in Ruby, that's more of like a framework, right? I guess Yargs is a library because you're still implementing the script. You are instantiating the Yargs thing. So React React calls render to figure out what you are going to you know what to convert to DOM. So does that make React a framework? I think React is a library. I think well, so that's that's actually that's a good question, right? So what's the equivalent of the main method on the web? I think there's a very clear distinction, uh, especially if you look at like React versus something like you know Ember, and I'm sure Angular does this as well. In React, by default. 
to build a React thing, like you're going to pull in React, you may write some components, you may import them elsewhere, but the main method is that you have an index.html with some div in it, and you are the one that has to call like document or React DOM dot render, mm. and you pass it like document dot query selector all or whatever, and then the, your top level component, and that can be as simple or as complicated as you like. Or you can have a Webpack plugin do it or whatever else. But, like, the onus is on you to actually, like, take that React app and get it, like, starting up on the page. Right. Versus Ember, it's like, there is an index.html. It's fully wired up. There is no, like, one point where you, like, sit down and say, okay, start my program here. Right. Like, Ember has abstracted all of that away. To me, that's, like, the main method for a front-end application. Right, and if you look at, if you actually look at something that uh, Ember generates, that look at the index HTML, they generate a script tag for you that instantiates your application and, you know, mounts it on an element. Yeah. And if you want to change that element, that's actually a configuration option that you can change, but it's still a configuration option that's consumed by the framework. And so in that sense, there is that inversion of control. And I see what you mean. Like in, in React, you're the one who flicks off the first domino. Yeah. Right? It's like, who's the, who's the prime mover? <laughs> right? Is it you or is it, is it the framework that, that you know, knocks over the first domino? So I like, I like Chris's explanation, and I think it's elegant to say, because I, I was thinking in terms of you know, structure, if it imposes a structure on you. But really, the structure is there. Uh, it, it's like uh, one of those IKEA shelf systems for you to put stuff into. If you're trying to solve a problem, here's a shelving system for you to put stuff into, whereas a, a library is just the tool like that you might get out to put something together. That's a, you know something that's multi-purpose, but doesn't impose any, uh, any structure on you or a ton of structure on you. My question is, what's the usefulness of distinguishing between the two? I think I think what what's interesting, and we had this experience. In, I mean, I've had this experience the last couple of projects. Is that people, especially in React land, they kind of assume that, especially because a lot of people are entering into React, not not, not understanding the context within which like React emerged, and so they're they're getting into React, assuming that it has everything you need to build the application that you need to build, and so. They don't fully, like, if a lot of them haven't necessarily built a single-page application from scratch before. And so they jump into building something with React, and then it takes about a year for them to realize the full scope of all of the features that their application actually has. And then they kind of take a retroactive look and look like, okay, well, what do I have What I have now? And it's kind of, and then what's what emerges is that they've actually, over the last year, they've been creating a framework. Oh, sorry, yeah, without, without realizing that, uh, that this is actually happening. They've imposed the structure of saying, here's the shelving system. Books about geography go here. Books on uh, English literature go there, and so on and so forth. But that's not how, when you rolled your own framework, that's not how it goes. It's, uh, okay, so you have to launch this uh, this balloon into the stratosphere to put a book on the shelf uh, for <laughs> geology. <laughs> Taras, to your point, the uh, it sounds like the importance is setting expectations properly for people so that they know what they're in for because uh, kind of calling back to Ryan Florence's post a few years ago of you can't not have a framework. Like you, at some point you must, you will have a framework in order to ship something. I would actually take it one step further. Uh, my friend Kyle talks about this, that there's library is the smallest unit. Then you're working within a framework, but that still doesn't take your code to production and put it in a debuggable state. You need a platform. 
And so it's arguable if, if you're handling deployment tasks and debugging tasks and operating software in production, you now have a platform. And it's fair to say that Rails crossed that threshold at one point. It's fair to say that Ember has probably crossed that threshold if you combine Ember with Ember, uh, Ember CLI deploy and the CLI tooling and all of that stuff. This almost like acts as a platform if you're owning and maintaining the software in production. So now, can I play devil's advocate here and say, okay, but why does that? Why does a platform? Is that necessarily predicated on a framework? Like, does it? Is there a pyramid where it goes library, framework, platform, uh, and one is built on top of the other? And so, why couldn't I have a library? Because because what I'm hearing is that there are just a, the the scope of concerns are is just rendering HTML based on a state is you know a very small chunk. Right, it's the, the actual scope of things that you need to do to get that code in production, and have it be reliable and do all of the features that you want to do is just massive. But why is that predicated on a framework? So, for example, you know, one thing you have is like a bunch of libraries out there, like you know, routing for managing the title tag, managing um, you know all these things that you have to do for managing deployment, for building your application, for compressing it. Like, there's all these different libraries out there. Why can't I just use, like, what if there was, like, one massive library that just picked a bunch of other libraries, but I was still in control? So I've actually seen this happen in, in the last several projects. And so what I've seen is that when you, when you people jump into building, they re- eventually realize that they're building a platform. But what happens before that is that they take users' requirements and they break those up into uh, into, like, respective like they break them up by sections and then and then they assign them to a bunch of development teams who go and actually start to build on one platform they end up building like five or six or ten of siloed packaged applications that have in some cases have their own dependencies have their own uh, you know they have similar might have similar architecture might not have similar architecture like each team kind of implements things differently and there's an expectation that once you package all of those things as NPM and then you install them into one package, you know, into one application, when you run build, it's just going to work together. And, and then that's where I think what the framework does, it creates kind of a foundation for these verticals to be implemented using kind of common foundation. Um, and this is what a lot of times is if you don't realize that what you're trying to set out to build the way that the product projects get managed quite often, especially for big for big applications for big platforms, is that it creates this period of about two years where where there is a lot of confusion and there's a lot of duplication, and then you end up seeing code that does where that is hard to put in production. Yeah, I agree. And so I'm curious then because you know we started out talking about library and framework, and and talked about you know it takes kind of two years to recognize that you're 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 building a framework or you're building not a framework but a platform and you know Brandon you said something very interesting Rails you know for example crossed the threshold of being more than a framework and actually being a platform so what are the concerns of a platform that are beyond a framework um, I mean we talked about and using the kind of loose definition of a framework as being something where you create the framework creates spaces for your code to run your code so you can just take little dollops of code and put them and they'll do they have one concern but the framework manages the coordination of the concerns but again but but what's the next level 
for the purposes of this conversation, I think that I, I may have muddied the waters a little bit because I think it's more the, it's more interesting to talk about the transition and the where the level at which you've crossed the threshold from being a library or using libraries or collecting libraries mm-hmm. into maintaining a framework because it's where you're going to experience more pain more than likely than uh, to me the idea of from works on my machine to deployed and supported across a lot of users sounds like it's more interesting, but it's not where we experience most of our pain, actually. Uh, like from my experience maintaining front end, you know, single page applications, most of the pain is actually getting the, the damn thing to work on your machine and, and getting the libraries to collectively work together. And then getting that to, to production kind of enters back into an area of more known unknowns. I think that that's a surprisingly a more mature ecosystem still getting from this thing works on my machine to getting it out the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't true when Rails was invented. And so Rails had to kind of invent a lot of its own ecosystem around this stuff. And so I, I, I like I said, I don't want to muddy the waters too much. I think to me, the interesting question is, you know, how do you know you've crossed this threshold? What pain points... Mm are exposed when you start crossing that threshold or when you're pu- pushing the boundaries of that threshold. Because you should not be using a framework if you're using React to do a uh, select dropdown. Like that's, you know, you are now using it like you would use, uh, I would I think of it as if you're using it the way that, to replace something you might do uh, with a jQuery plugin, you know, five, 10 years ago, you're using React like it's a library. And so one of the one of the questions that you'd brought up was, is the combination of React and Redux a framework? And I would argue that it is, but I kind of want to throw that out to, like, oh, to the rest of the Oh, interesting. I disagree. I would say, uh, yeah, I would say it's two libraries stuck together to make a bigger library. It's like a monolithic library. But by the time you're actually using that to do anything, uh, I, maybe the third thing in there is like transitioning states when you transition routes. Like, at what point is that threshold crossed? And so I didn't build most of the software that that led me to some of the opinions that I have about this. This was actually Chris Freeman, so <laughs> I, I'm going to defer to you on this. So I, I think React plus Redux constitutes, if you look at what it does, you know, you have, like, this view layer and this state layer. Like, there's a set of opinions in there that is useful, and there is the foundation for doing quite a bit. But in my experience... You've already kind of alluded to this a little bit. I don't think it's a framework because as soon as you start using those two things, you are suddenly the next thing you hit is, oh wait, how do I handle asynchronous things? Well, that's you know, there's a lot of different options for that. Oh well, now I need to do routing. How do I incorporate routing into my React app, but also in a way that is amenable to state transitions and redux but also like that is aware of the async stuff that i'm doing that is going to possibly be triggered by my routes and by my redux actions or Mm -hmm. by some other set of things and so suddenly you are very quickly pulling in a bunch of other libraries but also probably starting to build abstractions on top of them because you're already finding a lot of like common patterns that you're repeating over and over as you incorporate more and more pieces of the stack and then you're writing a lot of glue code. And I think if that that's the point where it's like, 
suddenly you look back and behind you is like the footsteps of this, you know, framework that's been like walking alongside you the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) That is where I carried you, then dropped you, then sort of drowned you. (laughs) And then kicked your corpse. (laughs) So I'd like to suggest uh, a way to think about this. As you guys are talking about it, it kind of occurred to me is that it seems to me that, that libraries concentrate on how and frameworks focus on the what. Oh, I love that. Yeah, because when you think about, um, if you, if you think about, for example, like React is how do you effect, efficiently, uh, update DOM? Then, uh, Re- Redux is how do you efficiently, uh, or how, how do you, uh, wire together state, uh, across multiple components that might be in different parts of the state tree? And then if you look at, uh, for example, uh, React router or any kind of routing component, it's like, you know, how do you choose which components you want to render when you navigate a specific URL? But when you combine those things together, what you get is, and, and because those things by themselves are not a complete solution, but when you combine them together, what you get is you, you have a way of saying, when I navigate to a specific URL, I'm going to load specific data, provide that data to components, and then I will have a way to navigate to a different URL when you click on a link. And, and from that, I think what, what happens when you, when you, when you get to like framework level is you actually start to, you have a kind of a bigger umbrella under which, under that umbrella, you have ways to address problems that you did not have previously. Um, and I think that's what kind of a framework does is it over time, uh, it's a, it's a way of addressing concerns that cannot be addressed with a solution. They have to be addressed with a collection of solutions and then they provide a specific, like specific solution. So it's, a, it's mm. uh, I don't know if that's what you guys. Yeah, think no, it makes that? that that's actually sparked off a train of thought in my mind that perhaps what you really want to do is say, and I'm going to go a little bit like you know lisp on y'all in the sense of you know every every code at some point is data, mm-hmm. is that maybe every library at some point is a framework. It's just this, you can look and say what is the scope of the what that I'm tackling. So. For some point, you can say like React is a framework, right? It creates this space where I can put my JSX, aka the render function, and I'm basically inverting control. And so what it is, it is a framework for efficiently rendering HTML um, or efficiently mapping a object to a fragment of DOM. And then so you don't have to worry about you know the, the, the DOM that gets generated from your render function patching that into the, the HTML, you don't have to worry about that. There's that inversion of control. It creates that space. But that's the only space that it creates. And so from that perspective, React is a framework for generating HTML. But that's all it is. But it is a library for constructing applications. Does that make any sense? And, and, and I think that as you as you layer on concerns, you have, you know, your framework creates spaces for you to use your library code to, to put stuff in. And so in the same way, you know, I think one of the key realizations I'm going to call out to like Big Test, and I'm not going to take credit for this. It was actually a blog post that I read at Google. He was like, uh, I can't remember what it is, but we'll link to it in the show notes, where he said, there are no such thing as unit tests. There are no such things as acceptance tests. There are just tests of varying scope. They're all acceptance tests, you know, to use that one thing. They're all experiments. It's just what is the scope? of the test that you were trying to accomplish. And, you know, his argument was we want to make that scope as big as possible uh, by default. And then, you know, where appropriate, you you narrow down. So maybe the framework library distinction is a little bit constructed 
you know, kind of a, a, a construction of our own minds. And what really is, is there is, you know, there's just frameworks of varying scope. Yeah. So agreeing on a shared scope is actually probably the most important part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're referring to building end-to-end an application from data access to rendering to testing. To deployment, to routing. Yeah. To one-day accessibility. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If, I mean, adding that into the discussion is like a baseline of what constitutes an application is, is the percentage of people that are able to actually use it. Uh, mm-hmm. The people that are locked out from using it, you know, by ability, you know, that's a very useful frame for the discussion of what constitutes, you know, let's agree on a scope of what an application is. And then coming back to what Taras was saying is basically when you're talking about the how, that's a decision point. And, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about decision fatigue in JavaScript, and it's almost a played out trope at this point, but it, it hasn't gone away as a problem. And so what, what frameworks are doing is they're making a series of decisions for you that allow you to basically connect these uh, the pieces from end to end. Basically, somebody threw a rope bridge across the canyon and then gradually, like said, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be the best solution to get end to end, but we have to solve the problem end to end. And if we agree on the places end to end, and, and, and the problem is when you're building your own series of libraries, you're like, oh, I'm going to choose best in class of A, best in class of B, best of class of C. And that sounds really good. But if you're trying to build a bridge across a canyon and you're building it in 10 best of class sections, oh, yes, for the type, you know, the type of connection we're trying to make here in the middle, we're going to use the best in class here. The, the weak point is in the connections. And so you had better be, you know, the world's foremost uh, engineer if you're going to be the person connecting all these disparate pieces uh, that are each best in class in order to bridge this canyon. And so the, that's the thing that's interesting to me. If we're going to, and, and it's not even agreed in our industry that, you know, JavaScript-based web applications are a good thing or that the browser is web application runtime. Uh, those are things that are up for debate. But I think if we make that assumption, this is sort of the founding principle of where Ember came from and it executed on it to the best of it, its, its ability at the time. And that, that sort of philosophy is, I think you can kind of prove it out in terms of results based on if you have two different applications, one of them is built by somebody trying to jam together best in class components, and the other person is starting with an end-to-end solution with a community of people rallied around that solution. And uh, it's, been, it's been interesting to watch those approaches play out over time. I know Chris has very specific hands-on experience of having done both of these. I'm, I'm curious to get your, yeah. your hot take. So there's something, there's actually like a concept that I think about a lot in relation to this question. And it's something that I actually heard come up again recently. So the timing was great, but it's called hypocognition. And the idea is that like hypocognition is when you either just like can't see or can't understand some kind of uh, like cognitive representation of something because you don't have the words for it. Uh, and so an example is in Western cultures, there are not, especially like in English-speaking cultures, there are not that many words for the color blue. But in a lot of other cultures, they have many, many words for the color blue. And after doing a big study, they found that these English speakers actually have a harder time recognizing different shades of blue. Like they, more of them just look the same versus other cultures where their brains are actually wired to see all of this variety because they actually, like, mm-hmm. they have the linguistic representations for these ideas already. And when you were talking about like, maybe a, maybe a library is a framework at some point, I think that's, that's like, that's right on. And I think 
one of the things that I, I think about a lot when talking about frameworks and kind of seeing these debates happen on the internet about, you know, what is a framework, but also, like, do we even need a framework, is obviously there's a lot of people who absolutely, like Ryan Florence. Ryan Florence clearly knows what a framework is. He knows what it takes to build a web application. And he does not lack the words to, like, define you know a framework versus a library he's he's just made that choice and it's a very informed choice but i wonder if there's also a lot of people who are like getting into web development for the first time and they look at something like a framework and it seems just absurd that anyone would want all of the things that like an ember or an angular is talking about when they can like make a basic ui with react and it's easy and and fun and really cool but then this two-year path happens and they look back and they've learned a whole bunch. And now it's like, oh, you couldn't even have explained this to me before because all of the words would have fallen on deaf ears. But now suddenly it makes a staggering amount of sense. Right. No, I love that. And you, so can, you have to make a bad one. You have to make a bad <laughs> one. Yeah. Yeah. Just so that you can inherit the vocabulary to understand why you made a bad one. So now you guys actually have some experience with this, and uh, Brandon, you gave a talk about it, which I think you should give more widely because um, it's it's fantastic. But so for those folks who may or may not be aware that they are walking this two year path, you know, I want to talk first about you know what are the signs that you're walking along this path, and then two, like what what are the consequences, you know, in terms of the the cost that you're paying for walking this path. So yeah, let's let's. Start with that uh, that first thing, or like, what are the signs? Like, how can you tell? Like, yeah. am I building a framework? So, I think one of the telltale signs and one of the the biggest red flags that caused me and Brandon to have a very serious heart to heart about our own personal framework was when when we hit the point where you could look at a set of tickets for features, and all you saw was like quote-unquote framework features that you needed to write before you could build the feature itself oh. so you know like oh we have we have basic routing set up and we have it set up so that if you have a route transition and you would like a data request to happen when a certain route transition happens that will happen but then oh someone would like infinite scroll and so we want to use a query param to like when the query param changes, I want to update the query and fetch more records, except that the glue code that we wrote to tie our router to our Redux async stuff is not aware of query params. It has no concept of like <laughs> what a query param is or what to do when it changes. And it also has no concept of like refetching the data without a full route transition. So uh, what do we do? Like this person wants infinite scroll, but I first have to implement several layers of framework code before I can even build the UI feature that you want. So like the, the basic heuristic there is like ratio of direct feature code to like code that supports the direct feature code and code that supports the code that supports direct feature code. Like anytime you're anywhere above that first layer on the stack. Yeah. I think like Taras nailed it, like with the what versus the how. If you if you find yourself you're you're asked a question that is concerned with the what and you spend more time focused on the how, then like you, you might have a framework. I, I think people think of building an application like a recipe 
And so like, if you think of it in those terms, you know, you, people think of frameworks as very restrictive, but I'm a big fan of like Blue Apron, sponsor of this podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but they, you know, they, they pre-select the ingredients. You go, hey, like, and they give you the instructions and you know what to do. You still have to do the effort, but you know if you connect these pieces together properly that you're going to wind up having a good experience. And then it gives you a lot of freedom to experiment and be creative beyond that should you choose to. I think... Uh, one of the signs that you're you're you've done a crummy job is that you're staring down. Uh, like Chris Freeman said, you have you know you ha- you're actually starting to restrict your choices. Like mm, I can't actually build you that feature be- uh, because the amount of work we don't have time to take on the amount of work necessary to build the support structure to build you that feature. Or like if you find yourself writing a test framework. Uh, oh yeah, we did that too. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're, if you, you know, uh, I, we were real deep in this. So, so it feels not like p- there are developers that are like, I really want to feel like I'm walking into a grocery store and selecting all the things necessary for my recipe. And so it really depends on what your problem, you know, what, what the problem actually is. If you're working at, you know, a giant megacorp and you have two years to, de- you know, a two year timeline to deliver something and their goals are, uh, not about you know delivering tight you know stuff on a tight turnaround. That's usually a recipe for a software failure anyway. So, <laughs> but let's let's say that you weren't you know that you're in the five percent of those types of projects that's going to succeed. Uh, that might be a good place where you can say, all right, what we're trying to do here is so custom, and we have such a long lead time and a long leash and such high level of internal expertise here that we should be shopping in the grocery store, and we should be selecting all these things, and we should be solving these problems. But you have to know. So basically, when is it time to use a framework? Well, when you don't have 10 times the time you think you do, basically. Mm-hmm. When you don't have the ability to spend 80 to 90% of your time in the first three to four months of your project, maybe six months, debugging your glue code in between uh, the different libraries that you're gluing together, and then coming back and realizing that you've painted yourself into a corner and you have to re-architect your whole framework, then you can be so proud of this baby, you know, 18 months, two years from now, when you actually have, you've delivered both a framework that took about 70% of your time mm-hmm. and an application that took 25 or 30% of your time. Yeah. And I think it's important to realize that, if, you know, people will think we'll do it and we'll, uh, you know, we'll build it as we go. But you, you like, I want to call out right there. It's like you will be spending 80% of your time and you, you have to be upfront about it. Of this two years, 18 months of it is going to be spent building this framework and six months yeah, of it I- is going to be spent actually writing the feature code. And like you have to be, you know, 75% of your tickets or your issues, however you track the work. 75% of that has to be dedicated to the framework. And if you're going to build that, bake in that kind of overhead purely for uh, the satisfaction of a single or one or two developers that like inventing things, uh, that is literally the worst possible reason you could do that. Mm-hmm. That is almost like a guaranteed recipe for failure. So it has to be for some other business reason. Like, hey, there's we want to be the company that owns this. There has to be business value attached to in making that kind of investment. Right. If you can't justify that at the outset, then you should probably just go ahead and lean on an existing framework and join a community of people. Yeah, and I think the the kind of one good litmus test for that is, is this a what for which there is currently no how? And so, you know, this is one of the reasons, you know, we're writing big tests is because for the kind of the general JavaScript community, there are a number of acceptance test frameworks out there, but the the the, the market is very, very limited. And so kind of when we looked to actually acceptance test our React application, the, this thing does not exist. Um, now, we had experience with something that was very like uh, Ember specific. And so we kind of knew what the what was, 
right? We'd experience the what, but there was no how for our current situation. And so that's like a place where you might be, you know, you might be called upon where it makes business sense to actually invest in a framework. And I'll tell you another thing too, is if you have made the decision to kind of follow the beaten path on the other areas, then when framework is called for, you have the bandwidth, right? You've allowed for the buffer for the margin for you to write in with that framework. Whereas if you're, you know, if you're already just by default maintaining all the glue code in every single thing, then if some unique what comes along for which there is no how, you're not going to have the bandwidth to tackle it. Yeah, that's a real bad situation to be in. There's something else that I find interesting is because there's a certain point, like so this two-year mark where, where everyone's like, okay, well, you know, we, we, we want to fix this now. And I think what's what it's interesting what comes next, which is, you know, the three years of undoing all the stuff that you made because part of the, the biggest challenge especially on really big projects so when your project starts to borderline into platform so in a platform threshold is like when you have a multiple teams working separately to write like separate modules that run maybe in a separate npm i mean in a separate git repo and maybe package a separate npm package and assemble together then what happens at that point the the the, the question arises like how do you actually make these changes in this environment Answering that question is actually really difficult, and I think that's if we look at frameworks like like Ember. I mean, Ember really Ember has kind of made it their business to like figure out exactly how to make this happen, and I think they've done it really well. But it's a really challenging endeavor to, especially in corporate environments where they don't have an update. You have like upgrades that are like a curse. You know, it's like a thing you don't really want to ever do, you know, it, and because they don't really have like most, quite often they, they, they don't have the right testing habits in place to be able to support the kind of change that, I mean, support the change that's necessary. And so I think what, what a lot of times happens is that you kind of, you're the team that made, made the framework in the first place, they end up, you know, turning into like, it's like trying to maintain a forest, but you won't, but you will have like ten people, and they have they, they only have machetes. You know, all you can do is just <laughs> run around and like try to chop down little twigs. But then at the end of the day, the trees are still going to keep growing, and uh, that's the really I think the really challenging part of being two years into a project uh, where you've realized that you actually need something much more comprehensive than you essentially initially thought you needed. So. On that, assuming that you have, you know, you, you have decided that you are going to make a framework, uh, it's, you know, it's a good business decision for you, you know, kind of based on the criteria of this discussion. You know, how can you tell? How can you assess whether it's, it's good? I mean, Chris, you talked about, you know, needing to, uh, integrate query params with routing and asynchronous data loading and making sure all of that coordination happened and worked together easily. So what's the difference between your framework just missing features, kind of having holes in it that can be filled in versus something that's not good and, and is going to cost you, you know, uh, lots of money down the road? Yeah. I think one thing, if you look at uh, what makes a good library of any kind, it's, you, it tends to be like how effectively and how much work does it take to address the use cases that you need. The problem is that to build a good framework, you need to understand your use cases. So if you don't have... And this is what usually happens over time is like, you, you know, two years in, you've actually understood your use cases and now it's time to change. And so I think if you want to build a good framework, you actually need to understand those use cases quite early on or account for understanding these use cases over time. And that's a kind of a 
you know, a big question. Like, how do you, how do you figure out how to know what you don't know? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I think about what you were just saying, Charles, and and Taras. Like, one of the things that I think has a big impact on what this process looks like is the completeness of vision for what your project actually is. So if you have a very, very clear idea of what the entire product you're building is going to be, or at least what the key money-making feature is going to be, and you can understand the ins and outs of that, then I think that's the point where you can look at what you have and say, have I created a good or bad framework? Like, does this framework have the ability to solve this, like, one very important thing that I have to be able to do. And if the framework doesn't do it, then I need to build my own. But I now know what very important features I need to front load my framework with. Uh, so I kind of think of it as like, you know, imagine that you're like Jeremiah Johnson, like Robert Riffer and Jeremiah Johnson, and you're going to go like trekking through the woods for some unknown amount of time. And you have no idea yet. Like, you don't actually know where you're going. You don't know what you're going to see. You don't even know what's out there because, you know, you haven't done the research or whatever. And you need to be prepared for anything. So you bring just kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. Well, if that's you at the beginning of your company or the beginning of your product, and you're just kind of like, I don't know, we got to get product market fit. And that means that we may have to kind of pivot once or twice or we need to be very flexible then I would think long and hard before you commit to writing your own framework because you don't even know what framework to build. And you might as well take like a, a broad array of tools and use what you need. And, you know, yeah, there will be times where that's frustrating and it won't be exactly the right tool for the job. But 80% of the time, it's going to do just fine. But if you know you have to do this one very special thing, and you know that a framework is going to give you a lot of stuff that you won't need, and it doesn't really excel at the one thing you do need, then don't force the framework. And it may be time to build your own, but just know that like, you need to go in with a very clear idea of what you're doing before you start building the abstractions that constitute a framework rather than just like a constellation of libraries. Mm-hmm. I have a question on that, Ben. So going back kind of to one of the things we were talking about, like React versus Redux, or React plus Redux, um, it was your opinion, Chris, that it is not a framework. So the question is, does a framework actually exist for React? My guess is that many frameworks exist for React. <laughs> <laughs> There's a public framework. Well, there is one called Fusion, uh, but it's essentially what you would imagine, right? It's, it's, uh, it, it is uh, essentially Redux and React together conventionalized. You know, it, it, there is there is a bunch of uh, it, it, they address a bunch of concerns around uh, server side uh, uh, server side rendering and, and such. But so it does exist. What about Next Next.js? I'm not familiar with it fe- with its features from from a single page application perspective. But I think it does have a router. Yeah, it does bundle with Redux, and I don't think, for example, you know, this is one of the things that. You know, is kind of when you first starting using Redux, it's like, well, how do I even get my store to my components? Yes, I can connect them, but there's actually a lot of stuff that you have to do, right? You have to like, you know, first you have to like say, well, I'm going to put my reducers here. 
And then when I create my store, I'm going to kind of merge. I'm going to fold my, all my reducers. You know, if I've got a whole bunch of reducers in my application, I've got to fold them all together. I've got to then, you know, pass them off to the store. I've got to, when I create the store, I have to inject the middleware. And then, you know, everybody else just imports my store. And then I have to put it in a provider. And then I can connect my components. That's actually a lot of stuff that you have to do. And I think that, for example, Fusion just says, put your reducers here and we'll take care of all that process. And kind of so it makes that decision for you, right? You you know, it says for state management, you're going to use Redux. For your reducers, they're going to go here. For your actions, they're going to go here. I don't know exactly how it's laid out, but I remember, you know, I remember reading the readme and it was, you know, basically putting layering conventions over that. That's definitely going into framework territory, but that's the only one that I know of, which is really, really odd. Well, there's something interesting that's happening also, and this is a kind of goes to uh, what Brandon was saying earlier, is that choosing the best in class, you know, the 10 things, but then what if uh, one of the best in class stops being the best in class, right? And so, like, the fact that Redux, uh, the creators of Redux are now essentially saying that, you know, this was, this is a solution that to, we needed to basically provide a way to do Flux that was better than than 10 different options that were available. So here's Redux. Uh, we created Redux, but we don't really think it's ultimately the solution. We need to have something else in a frame in, in React that, that provides a foundation for us to be able to deliver better state management than what Redux is. And so what happens when when the one of the best in class is no longer the best in class, but the ship, I mean, the, the, the bridge is already standing, right? There's people walking across the bridge already. How do you replace one of the chains in it? Over the course of six months, while you figure out the differences in API between Flux and Redux, and all the custom route, the custom route transition data loading uh, stuff you did with your Ajax library in your state management software that you put in a case statement inside there that you now have to uh, change over. It's easy. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just a simple this, matter of programming. This whole yeah. hour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, at least 25 years of, uh, of collective uh, front-end development experience is la- laughing like hyenas <laughs> about the simplicity of building up. <laughs> oh, man. It's, yeah, I'm actually looking at some of the old code that Chris wrote for trying to glue together Redux Saga. Uh, I mean, I can't honestly... It, I've been out of the game long enough to not know whether you know that's been superseded by some you know newer best in class piece of technology and even then it was really challenging and like you said uh that uh, like and and this is kind of this is true for frameworks too is they they don't really optimize for best in class they optimize for you know hopefully best fit for purpose but you know the the world has moved on since ember uh, launched obviously like a lot of things have changed and it's very it's at least as difficult to try to keep that up to date with evolving you know trends and technologies and updates for a core team at a framework level that it, as it is for you as an engineer on a team the difference is you get to outsource that work to a core team for for a framework so th- like ember has not done a fantastic job keeping up with like they've d- they've done a good job and they've tried their best, but if you know if there were more people working on it or if there was more effort applied to it or if it was a higher priority, you would see Ember being a more up to date framework using more modern tools. And as a framework author, if you stay too close to the bleeding edge, all you're going to do is change out your build system. 
you know, you're going to replace a broccoli with uh, Webpack, with Rollup, with what, you know, whatever's after that. Uh, what's the new one, Packer? Or what's parcel? the what's parcel? The parcel. Yeah. Parcel's no joke, though. So, yeah. No, I mean, uh, you should immediately go uh, build your framework with that and have fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I mean, I, I am excited by the new and interesting stuff that's happening in these ecosystems. And I think uh, it's just it, it, it's important not to get lulled into the siren song if your goal is to actually ship a piece of software on a timetable or a budget. One thing is if, if you think I think a red flag is if you think this is easy, if you think your decisions can be made in this isolation without talking to somebody else and like actually like kind of flashing it out then you're probably doing something wrong because a lot of these things are not trivial. There's a lot of a lot of thought and there's a lot of consideration that needs to go into decisions that you make, especially when you're creating something that is going to be used by more than a few people. And uh, I think that's a really, that's like one of those things where it's hard to know what you don't know, but if you think you know and you haven't done this before, or you haven't done this a few times before, you're, you're, you're probably missing some pieces. Yeah, I hard agree with that. Yeah. I think one of the things that's really enticing about React and Taras, you kind of you just hit on it, but like I've never felt as clever as when I was writing a React app. <laughs> and, and like by clever, I mean like clever in the same way that I felt really clever when I wrote like some unbelievably convoluted Scala one-liner that six months later neither me nor anyone else could decipher what it did. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, I felt like a god of programming. That's how I felt. Like with a lot of the React stuff, it was it was addicting. I mean, it felt mm-hmm. it was so much fun. It was so much fun until I really had to do something, and it mattered for my job. And there was a deadline, mm-hmm. and people were depending on me. And I've realized that the clever thing I had done a month later was not the right clever thing. But I can see how if you're like what Taras was saying, where you are at the point where you're like, these decisions are, like, this is easy. You know, these decisions make sense. We're going to be fine. And you haven't done it enough to kind of, like, know where all of the pitfalls are. That cleverness that you feel is fantastic. And mm. I can see why it takes two years before you look back and it, the cleverness has finally worn off. And then you're just mortified at what you've done. <laughs> Pride cometh like, before like, the fall. Yeah. Well, it's it's like being a dungeon master in Dungeons and Dragons where you're like, oh, look at this fiendish world I've designed. These beautiful monsters. <laughs> like, okay. You're, all right, cool. Um, now you actually live there, though. <laughs> you have to move into an apartment on Mordor. Like, oh, you know what's the funny flip side to that is that um, being uh, coming from Amber World where um, where we so you know the, it's so normal to leverage the work of other clever people, like really smart people who've invested a lot of time to solving a particular problem. Is that there's no stronger sense of being dumb than having to write it from scratch in React. You know, like yeah, the fir- that first feeling of like I've actually never had to implement this from scratch, and I've been like I've built like a bunch of applications before, but because I've leaned on like for accessibility, I've leaned on something that someone else has done, and it worked really well for me, and it was perfect. But now I need to implement a you know autocomplete from scratch in React, and I have no support. I'm basically like learning as I'm going on this, and it's like that kind of like sense of like discomfort that you get from from having to do it from scratch. And then 
comes the euphoria of having figured it figured out, right? <laughs> but yeah. right. you figured it out. You figured it out in the last month. You've wrote, writ, written it for the first time in the last month, and you now understand what all the things that the Ember uh, implementation does for you, right? It, but it's, it's an interesting psychology it, of um, yeah. It gives you a lot of perspective, but you have to ask as a business owner who may or may not be technical, and this is the hardest thing for technical people who are business owners, is to be able to not see things through a technical lens, is what you really want to pay for is to basically give uh, your programmers this kind of aha moment at their own shortcomings. Like, is that, uh, is, that what you, is, that, is that what you want to be buying? Yeah, you want to maximize leverage, right? Your, your goal with technology is to maximize leverage. And it's like being hired as a, a chef and you walk in and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm a terrific chef. I worked in these fancy kitchens in New York and I'm known as a great chef. And they're like, okay, cool. Here's some flint and steel and a spear. <laughs> Go hunt. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Show me what you can do. <laughs> yeah, it, we, we had a conversation with uh, in one of the previous podcast episodes with Michael Jackson, and we asked him, you know, what is uh, what is the one thing you wish uh, like React community would do more of? And he was like, you know, I, I really wish React community had more conventions. So all of this is to kind of say is like there is place for frameworks in React world, right? It's there's actually it's a very there's a very strong place for it. The question is how and what is it and how do you actually build it and when so do you we need a framework it? for making frameworks <laughs> <laughs> getting really meta here <clears throat> <laughs> i totally agree with that and and that's a great observation and that was actually the point of my talk as well which is it, you know if i could convince people just to use ember and and improve ember that would be great because i think it's a really great starting point but the react community is is much larger because it had such a great adoption story the adoption of ember was very difficult and the adoption of react was very easy and there was a sort of you know it expanded to include the scope of full end-to-end applications in terms of what people thought the problem spaces they were thinking of with React. Ember was built to solve that, but it was hard to get into. React was really easy to get into, but but it's actually hard to build applications with. And I would love to see a dedicated subset of the React community accept the idea of shared solutions and the philosophies that made Ember into sort of a powerhouse of value delivery, but you know, built out of tools that satisfy the React community and are a little more modular and a little more uh, available for people to customize and built in that ecosystem. I'd really love to see that, that included all the, the main components of what we accept as a, you know, this is an application framework. It handles testing, it handles accessibility, it handles data loading, and it doesn't have to be best in class in every scenario, but it does have to be a reasonable bridge across that chasm and have a group of people look at this the same way. I would love to see that uh, a collective uh, subset of the React community dedicate themselves to this idea. I don't know if that's too culturally opposed or even orthogonal to what the React community is, you know, the value system inside the React community. I haven't been able to fish that out, but I would really love to see that emerge. This is something I would love to push for, and I'd love to see other people jump in and push for. It's like, hey, what if 20 of us got together and decided, hey, we're all building our applications in similar ways. Why don't we Instead of uh, you know one person saying I'm going to use you know, even create React app is kind of a band aid on that it isn't a like it isn't useful past a certain stage of life 
And so I, I would love to see a group of people, though, get together that are sort of like-minded like that, the Michael Jacksons and uh, maybe even Dan Abramov, and, or a group of people that, that share that set of values or came into React from the Ember community. That's actually one piece of advice I would give to people. You know, you said, hey, how do you convince this engineer that they've built a bad framework? Like, use a decent one. <laughs> That's the biggest guide. Use a decent one. Build something in Ember and ship it to production and go, oh, I get it. Yeah. Uh, build some, you know, if you've used a good framework, uh, you can't go back to rolling a crappy one. Your standards have been ratcheted up. I mean, I, I, so I wholeheartedly agree that you should try something else. And, you know, Ember is a great option. But I also, I don't want to dismiss the, like, React is cool as hell. And there's a lot of stuff in React that is, like, really, really awesome in, in things that I wish that you know would show up in ember and that are starting to show up right. in ember but they're they're taking you know they're taking a while and it'll be nice when they're there but who knows when that'll be but what i would encourage even more so is like both sides like ember folks who are listening to this podcast if you have never messed around with react because you feel some kind of a tribe like tribal affiliation that you can't betray Please set that aside and go do something in React because you will learn a lot about why Ember does what it does, and you will see a lot of really interesting things that will probably like jostle some ideas loose in your brain. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes for React developers. Like you, one hundred percent should spend a weekend building something in Ember, and nothing about that means that you have to switch or that it's going to change the path that you're going on at work. But I guarantee you, you will go back to your React application with some new and very useful perspective that you didn't have before. And that's okay. Like, that's great. There's no, there's no like identity crisis that will come about as a result of that. That is fantastic advice, Chris. It will only stretch you. Yeah. I think developers have been sold this idea of a competitive landscape by authors of these frameworks uh, because it helps sell the framework. Like it, it uh, you, you can build and strengthen a community by uh, leaning into the tribalism that can surround the usage of a tool. And I would really like the older I've gotten as a person who was deeply tri- tribalistic about uh, Ruby on Rails when I got into it and then Ember when I got into it. And because uh, I love tribes, I think tribes are awesome and it's a way to make friends. But when you really lean into that, the costs are too high. And experimenting with other technologies and noticing flaws in your own technology is not only not a betrayal, it's actually critical to your growth as a developer. Mm. And when the more people that do that, like Chris was saying, the better both of those ecosystems will get. Absolutely, because having spent as much time in React as I have, I really appreciate the precious things about about Ember. Like really, it will it will make you appreciate the things that you hold dear like the, the it will make you appreciate the really 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 special things uh, about the tool that you're using and at the same time you will it will highlight the weaknesses which you can immediately use to feedback and and make your tool better um and so it's it really is a win-win situation and on that note i just want to do a little plug for and we should close up is uh, a lot of the i think the feels of working with Ember is, have actually gone into microstates and we have not, like, we're still getting our things together to get, to make microstates look accessible to and usable by everyone. But that feeling of pleasure that you get from working with, with Ember and just things just being there for you, like, we really want to kind of reproduce that and make that available in React community. And the stuff that we do with microstates is actually really designed for that. Yeah, I see that in, in big tests too, as well. Like, that's definitely, 
that's definitely another place where it's like, oh yeah, these people definitely used to spend time in Ember and are now in React land. It's cool yeah. to see that stuff getting ported over. Absolutely, because you're, it, it, changed, it fundamentally changes your taste. Working with an application that doesn't have like a bolted-on testing framework is like it's like eating water soup. You just can't enjoy your life. <laughs> so yeah, no, it, it goes. It, it really is flavored kind of everything uh, that we do. Uh, on that note, yeah, we can we can go ahead and wrap up. There actually is some pretty good, uh, pretty exciting news. Um, we are actually going to be launching a big test launcher. So up until this point, you've kind of had to roll your own with uh, using big test for your assertions, but using something like Karma to actually launch the browsers. Um, and we are actually launching our own launcher. I guess we've, we've written our own launcher and we're going to be pushing it to NPM, not to overload the word launch. Um, so that is, you can look for that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, there's going to be a CLI that ships with big test. Um, so to um, help you do even more setup to make it so that you can just drop uh, big test right into your application, no matter whether it's jQuery, React, Ember, you name it. So that should be really, really fun. So be looking for that. And with that, if anybody has any other remarks... Uh, if people are coming to RubyConf this year, I'll be there uh, talking about management stuff. But uh, that's that's my only near future conference stuff coming up. So uh, hope to see some of the more Ruby flavored folks out there. All righty, definitely go to every single talk that Brandon ever gives. You won't regret <laughs> it. I can uh, base that on very dear personal experience. You won't be disappointed. You know, not to put any pressure on or anything like that. <laughs> no, but you know, you could never put any more pressure on Brandon than he puts on himself. So with that, we will say goodbye. Bye, Chris. Bye, Brandon. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. It's certainly clarified a lot in my mind. Yeah, same here. Uh, about these, yeah, these problems. So with that, uh, we will say goodbye. Uh, thank you for listening to the Frontside Podcast. Please get in touch with us at, at the Frontside on Twitter or contact at frontside.io on email. Um, we do a range of custom services from full stack project development to JavaScript mentoring to, uh, you know, as you go JavaScript help desks kind of stuff. If you need to, to reach out to an expert. So please get in touch. Our podcast, as always, is produced by the inimitable Mandy Moore. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.